Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is a show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost, Masters of the Groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Also makes a great gift. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you for your continued interest and support. Speaking of which, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe. Subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes. And also uh, special um, related products like Truth and Rhythm Quick Takes, which are excerpts of the longer shows. So subscribe, tell a friend, tell family. This episode features an icon of funk, soul, and hip-hop radio. On-air personality extraordinaire, J.J. Johnson, first taking to the airwaves as a teenager in January 1968 at WABQ Cleveland, he then moved on to KYOK Houston the following year. In 1971, Johnson was hired at WGRT Chicago and later that year moved to San Francisco for a position with KFRC. After being promoted to program director at KFRC in 1973, in 1974, he was then hired by 1580 K-Day, K-D-A-Y, in Los Angeles. It was there with LA's most prominent and progressive R&B black urban radio station that he really built his legend, spending the better part of 17 years with that station. For some two decades, KDAY's ear-to-the-street music rotation defined Southern California R&B funk and rap sensibilities, and its character and assortment of characters reflected the community and its mindset. In the 1970s, if you were within its signal footprint and were into funk, you kept your dial glued to 1580, and same goes for the 1980s with rap, if that was your thing. Johnson also worked at other leading LA area stations, including KMPC, KGLH, and KACE. His extensive credits as an announcer also include the radio special, The Music of Black America, The Budweiser Concert Hour, 30 years with Motown, including the Emmy-winning Motown 25. He was also the segment announcer for Real TV with Ahmad Rashad and appeared as a ringside sports announcer in the movie Penitentiary 3. During his illustrious career, Johnson has had the pleasure of meeting various celebrities and icons in entertainment. For example, Marvin Gaye, Barry White, Marilyn McCoo, Albert King, Cool and the Gang, George Clinton, Patti LaBelle, Al Green, Al Jarreau, Babyface, The Jackson 5, and dozens more. In 2017, his book, Air Check, Life in Music Radio, was made a part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's permanent library and archives collection. Truth and Rhythm speaks to Johnson about his rise within the radio industry, how the business has changed over time, his remarkable run at the equally remarkable K-Day, memories forever etched into his mind, and what's next for him. Keep that dial where it is for a fantastic journey through the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and beyond when radio ruled the music world, courtesy of the great J.J. Johnson. Hey, I'm so pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, renowned radio personality, J.J. Johnson, who among his many accomplishments 
was a key figure for Los, Ange Los Angeles's legendary funk R&B and eventually rap AM station 1580 KDAY. KDAY, JJ, how are you today? I'm just fine, thank you. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm so glad you could join me. Well, it's my pleasure, man. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, now, and you're still coming from Los Angeles, is that correct? I am. Technically, I'm in Inglewood, but it's all LA. Inglewood, yeah. Um, uh, I was for a long time right there in Fox Hill, so pretty close. All right. Yeah. So as I as I told you before, you know, I kind of uh, high school grew up on on KDAY and you and those other uh, great DJs I had, and um, it really set my musical foundation for my whole life with all wow. that great R and B and funk, and I mean it's in my blood you know and so mm -hmm. i mean kday was the station for that at the time so very glad to meet you and have you on well well thank you very much you made me feel good by telling me that i have to tell some of the others most of us are still around as a matter of fact we had a little mini reunion about six months ago at the uh at the roosevelt in um, in hollywood it was just a few hours but we got to spend uh, time together uh, with people that we uh, uh, had, hold on a second, something's in my screen, with people that uh, we hadn't seen. Spanky Lane came in, and um, our general manager, Ed Kirby, came in. Jim Maddox came uh, in from New York. I mean, people would come up. Guy Brody came in from Atlanta. Guy Stewart, you might have known him on KDA as Guy Stewart. Anyhow, uh, so, yeah, so we, you know, uh, when when we hear things like that, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's gratifying. We made uh, an impact in, on somebody, made somebody uh, feel good uh, about something. Well, we'll, we'll get into uh, KDA deeper in a little bit, but I just wanted to say at the outset, you know, at the time I got into uh, mobile disc jockey work myself, mm -hmm. and it was such a big influence on me. And also I would put together my own mixtapes, and most of it was stuff, you know, that I would hear on KDA, and I would go out and get it as fast as possible and put it on my own boom box, you know? So it was just a great time. Well, all right, all right. Yeah. Um, hey, would you humor me with just uh, once doing sort of like a quick uh, call letter, uh, air check thing of, of KDAY? Oh, you want me to say, say, the, say the calls like I used to say them? Yeah. All right, 1580, KDAY. <laughs> yeah, <there it> is. <laughs> that's yeah you know the the uh the thing is uh the 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 trick is um uh to spin certain things but not spin everything you know what i mean you want to spin the call letters and you want to spin the uh um whatever promotion you happen to be doing at the time otherwise just talk like a human being um and uh, i wrote about this in my book um you know, I, I would never just say 1580 K-Day. Like when I was in San Francisco, I would never just say KFRC. I'd get a phone call if I did that. It had to be KFRC or KFRC, or but, but it had to be KFRC. It wasn't KFRC. So 1580 K-Day was not just 1580 K-Day. It was 1580 K-Day, you know. Um, but the rest of it, in, in the, the rest of the time, the trick is just to be who you are. Mm -hmm. And people will uh, people will buy that because because the the honesty connects so uh you know you don't want to sound like a, a a jock when you're having a regular conversation and here's how it paid off i wrote about this i was in martoni's which no longer exists but martoni's was the radio and records hangout uh, of the day uh, from 74 uh up until the earthquake and um um I was sitting with my grandmother and her friend who were in town and I wanted to give them a little bit of the, um, 
uh, a little bit of Hollywood. So I took him to lunch at Martoni's and we're sitting in a booth and uh, just chatting and, you know, winding up uh, lunch and a young lady came from an adjacent booth and said, um, excuse me, uh, aren't you J.J. Johnson from uh, KGFJ? I said, no, actually, I'm on K-Day. But how did you know? She said, well, I recognized your voice. Now, if I had uh, come with some phony, you know, uh, phony jock kind of a, a, a thing, if I if I had been talking like that on the air, she would not have recognized me in person. But I didn't do that. I I, uh, I gave her who I was on the air. And uh, and that's the trick. And that's that's where the magic is, because everybody has a personality. And when I say personality, I'm not talking about something that you go way out of your way to do, some kind of trick. We, you know, we can have gimmicks, nothing wrong with a gimmick. But uh, um, part of the magic is just being who you are because everyone's unique. You know, there's nobody like me. There's nobody like you. There's nobody, uh, there, there's no two of us the same on the planet. Um, so if you will de just deliver that, um, people will buy it. Wow. So the way you do those colors is sort of like the logo in the audio, you know, it's like a branding. And then, that's exactly what it is. It's a branding. Yeah. And, and the other thing is if I don't make it sound special, why would, why would anybody think of it as special? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I have to make it sound special. I can't make it sound uh, above anybody's head or, you know, better than I just have to make it sound special. Like I have some enthusiasm for this. I'm glad to be here. You know what I mean? And, and that has to come through every time you say the calls. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. So, JJ, I know I think you first got your starter radio in Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. But could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came up, um, your youth and how you first got into broadcasting? Yeah, I was hanging out at a radio station, a, a jazz station. I <clears throat> I was a stock boy at a, um, um, a women's shoe store in uh, South Euclid, Ohio which is the suburb of Cleveland. And um, I was given a chance to sell shoes. I was horrible. I don't think I ever sold anything. I was given a chance twice. But the first time I brought in my friend Chuck Denson from, um, from high school to, to uh, work the stock detail while I tried to not sell shoes. And um, on the way back, we had to stop in Cleveland Heights. And there was a... Um, there was a... Um, we were at the bus stop and he said, you, you know, WCY is right behind us. That was the local jazz station. I said, yeah, okay. He said, let's, we ought to go up and see the disc jockey. I said, we can't do that. He said, yes, we can. No, we can't. Yes, we can. No, we can't. Yes, we can. No, we can't. So and we ended up in the building, went upstairs and we're in front of a door with a little round window and you go in first. No, you go in. No, you go in. No, you go in. No, you go in. And the guy came to the door and said, may I help you? And we said, yeah, we're here to see the disc jockey. He said, you got him. And you come on in. So we came in and uh, he, he had to sit in the studio with him. And he told us, you know, I, he's working. So I, we can't be distractive. But we sat there and I, I was initially fascinated with the idea that being on the far east end of Cleveland, in Cleveland Heights, in an eastern suburb, Every time he opened his mouth, uh, opened to crack the mic and said something or started a new song, somebody on the far uh, west end, west side of town, would hear him instantly. 
And so here he is effectively traveling at the speed of sound. I was fascinated with that. And so I, I started coming up every week. I would be, uh, I'd come up and hang out with him for an hour or two every uh, Saturday uh, evening. And uh, finally, in 1966, I was still 15. His name was Chuck Lansing. I don't know what happened to Chuck, but his name was Chuck Lansing. And I mentioned him, I also mentioned him in the book. I, 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 I did thank him once uh, when, I, when I went on the air at WABQ. I thanked him for his help. But uh, I'd sure like for him to know what he started because good things really came out of that. At any rate, he uh, said to me one, one night, he said, why don't you do this? I said, well, I can't. I'm only 15. He said, you got a social security card? I said, yeah. He said, well, then you can do this. And bing. <laughs> so that's when the quest began. And we did a, an audition tape there for WCUI and its sister station, the uh, other uh, R&B station. The, there were two R&B stations in town. Uh, the the WCUI sister station, WJMO, was one of them. And we... we uh, uh, had me stay till sign off and then we because they didn't have a production studio so we we uh, uh did an audition tape um right there in uh in the wcy air studio and got you know rejected in two places but i grew up in theater so you know telling me no is that's no big deal it's you know that's what happens it's showbiz so um i was wondering, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And I was listening to the radio one day. This was in 66, just before summer vacation. And Mike Payne on WABQ, who we listen to every afternoon, Mike Payne said something to the effect of, if I can help you uh, in any way, let me know. So I called him. I said, hey, I want to be on the radio. I want to be a disc jockey. He said, okay, well, come on down to see me. So I went down and I saw him. And, um, you know, he gave me the big tour and everything. And, you know, I was thrilled to death. And the stage, station was nice. WABQ was, was nice. It was not uh, elaborate, but it was nice and it was state of the art. And um, um, then he drove me uh, to a, a distant bus stop. So, I didn't, you know, uh, to, to one of my uh, transfer locations, which I loved. And I'm riding with Mike Payne. You know, this was big to me. So um, and we became lifelong friends, by the way. Um, so then a month passed and, you know, he had my number and I'm thinking at the age of 15 and, and, and 16, I turned 16 in July of that year. I'm thinking that, um, I'm going to get a call cause he got my number and a month passed or two months and then three months passed. I'm thinking, wait a minute now. So I called him back. I said, Hey man, I'm serious. He said, okay, come on down. So I came down and this time he, um, showed me how the production studio worked. And it was slightly different from the air studio because that's where the old equipment was. It was fine equipment, but it was old. Uh, but he showed me how it worked and he showed me how to make audition tapes. And he would hand me a stack of records and some, maybe a little commercial copy and some news and say, okay, just go for it, do what you think, right? He didn't give me any specific instructions. My first radio lesson after, uh, at the end of his shift at seven o'clock, he listened to what I put together and the first, lesson that I got in radio was it's W not W. Okay. I was saying WABQ it's WABQ. And that was uh, my first lesson from him. And I just kept doing that. And I did that and hung around the station for the next year and a half. And then finally Leon Isaac Kennedy, he worked there. He, he, he was Leon Isaac on WABQ. 
he was uh, on the way to WJLB in Detroit, which at that time was our sister station. It was uh, all owned by John Booth. And um, nobody ever said, you're going to be the next guy. But I figured I'm the only one here. So um, 1968 came. And uh, I knew that they're going to need somebody for the coming weekend and in the I don't know how that's going to work because Leon's not here. And finally, Mike said to me very casually, he said, uh, you ready to go on the air? And I said very casually, uh, yeah. And uh, I was <laughs> I was doing cartwheels inside, but I was I was outwardly I was cool, but I was doing cartwheels inside. And that Saturday, um, January 6th, 1968, I went on the air. And that's how that happened. That's how it started. Wow! And so, by that time, you were seventeen, or I was seventeen when I when I I was still in high school. I was still at JFK High School in <laughs> Cleveland. And um, just for your information, I said uh, <laughs> an hour and forty five minutes into my career, I said the S word twice on the air, and uh, my life practically passed before my eyes because I thought, oh man, after all this, I can't believe I just did that. I didn't say anything. He didn't show up. He didn't call me. And I didn't say anything to him about it for 30 years. And finally, I said, man, did you hear me say that? He said, nah. I said, okay, good. And I figured 30 years later, the coast was clear. I couldn't get retroactively fired. So, yeah, anyhow, that was my my adventure for the first day. I recount that all in the book, though. What was the format? It was an R&B station. Yeah, boy, 68. I mean, that was a turbulent, turbulent times, too, in our country. Well, yeah. Um, a few months later, I was on because I, I would uh, in, in the uh, longer. Uh, we were a daytimer and the, when the days got long, we would be on longer. And it varied by what, you know, what uh, what time of year it was, what month, the sign off times and the sign on times. And I had uh, I had gone on, I think I think. If memory serves, I was on the air after seven and I, it wasn't on very long. I think I, we signed it off at like eight or something like that at that time. I'm not certain. Mem my memory may be a little faulty here. All I know is that Wild West Dickinson was, was at the station with me. And uh, we were puttering around and he looked at the teletype and, and Dr. King had been assassinated. And uh, so we contacted Mike Payne. He was the program director by that time. And John Jay, who was the general manager. And John Jay said, fired back up. We'll deal with the commission tomorrow. We were a daytimer, but we went 24 hours for three days. And all I did was in those three days was um, uh, go on the air, uh, go to school and sleep. That's all I did. And we fielded about over 70,000 phone calls. And Cleveland did not burn. So uh, I think we did uh, uh, we did a pretty good job of that, yeah. and that's when in, that's when it really becomes important. I was also on the air in L.A. when the uh, uh, they call it the Rodney King riots. I call it the Daryl Gates riots, but that's a whole political conversation. Uh, so, that, but that's when it becomes important because you uh, we did have influence and you, you know you, you can you need to talk people down. That doesn't mean that you need to go into uh, agreement with whatever occurred and we never did but uh you know looting and burning is not 
um, is not the answer. Getting getting angry about it is is absolutely understandable. But uh, you know we need to calm down here. And uh, and Cleveland didn't burn at all. I mean it had it had had problems and it had a riot later that year. But they it didn't uh, it there was no response uh, such response to the um, the J, uh, the MLK assassination. JJ, a few things. One <clears throat> is uh, I have to say that uh, shoe store. I worked for a shoe store when I was um, late teens. One day, <laughs> <laughs> that was my shortest job ever. I think it was at a Kenny Shoes. I did it were one you, day, and I was like, you, I'm not coming back. So, you were you a master salesman like I was? <laughs> I was I was the worst salesman in the history of the universe. Yeah, well, we're a shoe salesman. I knew it wasn't for me, but okay. uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, Cleveland, I wanted to just ask you, you know, about um, that environment, that community, because music seems to run so deep in in, in Ohio. I mean, you have Cleveland with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. and and the great artists that have come from there, but also Cincinnati and Dayton with all the funk stuff. What is it about Ohio? I don't know. I can tell you that Cleveland is an entertainment town. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, they they knew it was a steel town, and it, and it certainly was an industrial city. But uh, Cleveland, uh, for example, I started off in theater when I was a, a, a child, when I was five years old. Uh, Cleveland has the second largest theatrical community in America behind New York. Uh, most people don't know that. Um, the entertainment scene has always been vibrant. Uh, I don't know how it is today, but my father, I was raised by a musician. My father was a musician, professional musician. And um, so, you know, we had people come out of there like, you know, from Dorothy Dandridge to Halle Berry, uh, 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 Screaming Jay Hawkins, uh, the OJs, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. It was just, it was part of the environment. It was something that, uh, it was the norm. I mean, I could, I could go to Leo's Casino on Sunday afternoon, see the Temptations, catch a bus, go down to the music box, see the OJs when there were five of them, and then go around the corner to a, a, a place called Club 105. There was no uh, known act there, but there was, you know, dancing and music and whatnot. This is on Sunday. This is from Sunday afternoon into the nighttime. Then I have to split, you know, go home and get ready for school the next day. But I could do all that for uh, 10 bucks. <laughs> and even at that time, that was no money. Wow. So uh, that was the I, I don't have a another point of reference. So I, I don't know, you know, how to in t completely how to answer that question, because I grew up with that. And it was that was that was what I knew. That was the norm. <laughs> I certainly never knew that about Cleveland. I mean, growing up in Los Angeles, very similar, you know, with the film industry and the music industry. So in my blood, and I was used to that. Right. But I didn't know that about Cleveland. Right. Well, a lot of the people, a lot of the, the black actors, but not 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 strictly black actors, a lot of the black actors you see came through Caramel House. Ron O'Neill came through Caramel, Robert Guillaume, um, uh, and uh, many others. I met Lorraine Hansberry there because we... Uh, we were the ours was the only non-professional company licensed to present a raisin in the sun in 1961. So um, that's that's how heavy it was. That's what a heavy duty uh, uh, um, uh, entertainment environment we had uh, going on there. Wow. 
And um, of course, I have the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton also, which I was able to go to a few years ago. That was a, a thrill for me. But there's a lot happening in Ohio, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, the, the, the term was not uh, the term rock and roll was not invented by Alan Freed, but but he applied it to that music because rock and roll meant sex. That was that was that was the meaning of the word, you know, doing the wild thing, right? I'm a rock and roll with so and so, and so he played it, and he was playing it in 1952, uh, and aiming it to he 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 didn't it wasn't just limited to, but he was aiming it to uh, local white kids, which drove the parents crazy, and calling it rock and roll music, which implied sex, which made made them crazier, which of course made it very popular with them. And uh, and that's how it uh, how it came to be because the music had already existed, but he 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 uh, dubbed it rock and roll, and it wow. stuck. So it's it's appropriate that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame should be in Cleveland. So uh, JJ, how did your career progress from there? If you could step me through, you know what transpired um, up until you made the trip to Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So I went to I, I got a, a call from Mike Payne one day. He had he had moved on. He was getting ready to go to KCOH in Houston. And two days later I got a call from Wild West, who had also moved on. And he was getting ready to go to KY he was at KYOK in Houston. And uh, one offered 115 bucks, uh 110 bucks a week. Now we're talking 1960, no, excuse me, uh, yeah, 1969. Um one offered 110 bucks a week, the other 100 and a quarter. Well, that did it. I went to KYOK for 100 and a quarter. And uh, I stayed there um, for uh, about a year and a half. And in the course of things, uh, I decided I wanted to work in Top 40 Radio. So I called Bill Young up at Kilt and uh, KILT. And I went to see him. Well, he didn't have anything for me, but he got on the phone right in front of me and contacted Paul Drew. Paul Drew had been the program director of CKLW, which uh, boomed out of Windsor. I mean, they gave Cleveland weather. They were so they were so effective in Cleveland. Um, and, uh, and Bill Drake was the, uh, the consultant. And uh, Paul Drew at that point was at KFRC in San Francisco. And uh, Bill Young said, well, which way would you like to go? Would you like to uh, go north, east, or west? I said, well, I can stay here and wait for a, an opening in Kilt. I said, or I'd like to go west. So he called Paul Drew right there in front of me. He said, I got this kid here. And uh, I'm going to send you his tape and resume and whatnot. And he put me in touch with Drew. So I was in touch with Drew. Then I fell out with KYOK. And, um, um, <laughs> and ended up in Chicago. I, 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 when I went home, I called Jack the Rapper. And I said, hey, Jack, I said, I just quit KYOK. I said, I need a gig. He said, call me back in three minutes. So I called him back in three minutes. He said, okay, here's a number. He gave me a 312 number. He said, call Eddie Morrison at uh, WGRT in Chicago. Let me know what happens. So I called Eddie. He said he had a, an opening and uh, sent him a tape. I sent him a tape right away. He called me back and said, hey, let me fly you up here so you can look at the place and see what you think. So I flew up to Chicago, loved it. It was very much like Cleveland. And... Um, uh, took that gig so i was at uh, uh wgrt in chicago uh this was in 1971 early 71 now what happened in the meantime was paul drew called me and said hey you stop sending tapes send a tape keep sending tapes so i started sending him tapes again 
Then he called me one day and said, I'm at the Sheraton O'Hare. Would you like to join me for dinner? Well, yeah, I'd like to join Paul Drew for dinner. So I went out to the Sheraton O'Hare and had dinner with Paul. And um, he said, I'm going to have an opening in a couple of months. Uh, he said, here's what it's going to pay. It was really good pay for that time. And uh, uh, more than I was making in Chicago. And um, uh, then the offer came. I couldn't resist. I mean, you know, you really should be at a station for a year. Uh, anyhow, and I wasn't, I didn't feel good about that, but you know, the people were really nice. And the funny thing was I got an offer to host soul train while I was there. It was a local TV show and I couldn't do it because Mr. Uh, Atlas who owned the station was a little put out with me for uh, leaving so soon. Uh, so he, he, he invoked the, uh, no compete, uh, I think there was a no compete clause, which would have included that, you know, as it was worded, but that's all right. I wasn't mad at him. I, I totally understood that. And I, um, I uh, uh, headed to San Francisco. This was in June of 71. And I went to KFRC, man. KFRC was unbelievable. Uh, this was, um, and I, I'm with the same team that gave us CKLW, which I thought was just magic. This, you know, was an unbelievable uh, uh, operation. And I was at KFRC for uh, three and a half years. I ended up being the program director of their automated FM, which was not the most fun I ever had in my life, but it was a good experience in that it taught me how to do, it gave me skills that I, that I was able to use later, but I, I never liked that game, but I loved being on KFRC, man. And it, and it was prestigious. I mean, being on KFRC said to the radio world that you're one of the best. And, um, uh, it was, uh, it was the king of the Bay area. It was, it was, it was top of Bay area radio for contemporary music. And, uh, it was how, how big I mean, was to this? this day. Those of us who were there, uh, uh, it, it's like, uh, can you believe we were there? Uh, was was how, that incredible how, or what? How big was their signal? How many watts were they putting on? Uh, it was a 5,000 water, but it covered the Bay Area like a blanket. Remember, KFR uh, San Francisco is surrounded by water on three sides. You have the uh, Pacific Ocean, the Golden Gate, and, 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 the, uh, and San Francisco Bay. And uh, so uh, the, the uh, transmitter was in Berkeley, actually, across the bay. And um, the coverage was uh, incredible. I was listening. I tuned into KFRC when I, uh, uh, as I was driving through Sacramento. Uh, first person I heard was Bob Foster. And um, uh, that, was the, the, that was in the daytime. And, and then at dusk, I uh, got my first view of the bay. And I could barely make out the uh, lights of the city across the bay and then uh, drove through uh, past uh, Emeryville and Berkeley and Oakland and got on the Bay Bridge and then came through that tunnel. It was like the movies came through that tunnel. There's a um, uh, trying to remember the name of the island right in the middle of the bay. All of a sudden it's blanking on it, but there's an island that the uh, freeway goes through. And when, when it came out, it was like a movie. It was like one of those Humphrey Bogart, uh, 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 Sam Spade movies. Uh, came out through, through this thing and the city comes into view. It's like a movie. I couldn't believe it. And it was that way really for me for all the time that I was there. I never thought I'd ever leave San Francisco while I was there because uh, to, for me, it was just the perfect city. But then I did. Uh, what happened was I got, uh, I got an offer from K-Day. Jim Maddox called me up and said, hey, uh, would, would you come to K-Day? I turned him down twice on the phone. Then I came here. Uh, actually, I came to Inglewood to visit a friend and um, for the weekend. And um, 
naturally I tuned in Katie and I was real impressed. I said, Oh man, this station is this station is this is a radio station here. So I thought about it. I, I was not happy with my KFRC uh, position. I don't think I was exceptionally good at it. I think I was okay. And um, um, Drew would fire anybody, even any people he liked. And, and Drew always liked me. But that, wasn't gonna, that would not keep you in a job with him. Um, and finally, I said, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a uh, take Jim Maddox up on his offer. So I called him and I said, listen, I said, uh, I don't know if, you know, uh, if the offer still stands, I said, but I'm quitting this job tomorrow. So, you know, if, if you're still interested, I'm interested. Um, he said, well, call me back tomorrow. I called him back the next day and uh, um, he said, okay, come on down. And that was that. So I came down and that lasted 17 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How long did it take you to get used to earthquakes? Oh, it was not a problem. Um, you know, you grow up in severe weather. An earthquake is just another natural phenomenon. Um, the worst one was the last one, the one we had here in what? What was that, 94? Was that 94? Rodney King was 92, right? Yeah. So the, so the earthquake was 94. And um, that was an experience. But um, but it still didn't scare me. I mean, you know, that's just what happens. I live in L.A. The place is going to shake every now and then. You yeah. Know, I'm not going to worry about it. You're a cool you you had most of the most of the fatalities that happened in that quake all happened in one building. Most of them. I know. Actually, I was going to. Do you know where uh, Cal State Northridge is? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was going there when. Uh, uh, well, actually, no. Um, I had graduated from there. I was working in Chatsworth when that one hit, and uh, the place where I was working was just devastated. But um, yeah, no, I grew up in that, so I'm used to it. But my wife, who was from New York, she came out there, and it definitely took. I don't think she ever gets to it. Well, I I can understand why why that would. But you know, look, you're talking to somebody who who shoveled uh, tons of snow, who walked to school in snow, and and um, uh, you know, and when it was high school, if I didn't want to wait for the bus, I just walked the two miles back home. Um, through the snow. And I mean, that we had snow because uh, we Cleveland sits right there on Lake Erie. So it gets real snowy. Uh, so there was that. And there were thunderstorms, which which bothers some people. I love thunderstorms and I kind of miss them because we don't get them here. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, when I was a child, uh, I would put on my raincoat and go out on the porch so I could get the full effect of the thunderstorm because I love that stuff. So earthquakes, eh, you know, they happen. Yeah. It's, stuff goes bad and something's going to fall off your wall and something's going to fall, you know, come flying out of your cabinets and things are going to break. And then you pick it all up and clean it all up and buy new stuff and, you know, go on. Yeah. Well, the thunderstorm, since I moved to the Charlotte area, definitely get thunderstorms here. Unlike what you see in Los Angeles. So. Right. Yeah. Right. They're, they're, they're wimpy here in Cleveland. <laughs> they were some real boomers. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, JJ, talk to me about when you first settled in at, at KDAY. Um, what was the audience like? What was the format like? Um, talk about well, that. Jim, Jim Maddox was the program director. All the jocks were top 40 jocks except for Tom Reed. All the jocks had come from top 40 stations. Don Mack, Steve Woods, Jim, me. Um, 
and uh, and I broke in on the all-night shift with Gene West, which is also what happened at KFRC. I broke in on the all-night shift with Gene West. So I broke in in two places with him. Um, and uh, he was at KFRC. But they were all top 40 jocks. And what we were really doing was uh, black music uh, uh, in, a, in a top 40 uh, style. Um, we never called it soul radio, but we because we, we didn't want to be exclusionary. Uh, but it, 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 without a doubt, if you listen to the music, you listen to the news and you listen to the um, um, public service announcements and so forth, uh, you would you would know where, where it was uh, uh, targeted. And it was targeted to L.A.'s uh, black community and our, the acceptance level by the time I arrived, because remember, it had been going for about six months by the time I got there in June of 74. It started in January of 74, and it was immensely successful. So I just walked into a success. And um, I, 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 you know, it was like instant popularity just because I was there. I didn't really do anything uh, to, to earn that, per se. I think I earned my stay, but I didn't, I didn't uh, earn my way up uh, because just being on K-Day would, um, would make you popular. So I was popular. And that, and that happened fast. That happened in a, in a matter of uh, weeks. You know, after they get to know your name, bam, that's that's it. So, and and the jocks, Steve Woods turned me on to certain things. He's the one who first took me to Martoni's. I went to the, the whiskey. I had been to the whiskey once before on a visit. Uh, but I went to the whiskey and saw Rufus and Shaka Khan the second night in town. And that's when I fell in love with her. I mean, she, uh, she to this day, she's my favorite female vocalist. And that was established. Yeah, that was established in June of 74 when I saw her perform with Rufus. And I turned to my friend Billy and said, man, the band is really good, but the girl is awesome. Wow. So, yeah, that's that's how that went. It was uh, it was I was welcomed. And uh, and it was it was pleasant. K-Day was a pleasant experience, period. I mean, if I took all my good times and all my bad times at K-Day and I put them in respective piles, I had 14 good years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's that's pretty good, man. Uh, I was there for 17 years. Yeah, I had some episodes, but, you know, like everybody does everywhere. But it, it was it was overall it was a magic kind of thing. And um, I think most of us who were there are grateful to have been there. You know, Yeah, I, I saw uh, Shock and Rufus at the Roxy in 77. That was fantastic. The Roxy during that period also had most of the great black acts came through the Roxy. So, so many great shows there in the mid to late seventies. Oh yeah. I saw Bob Marley there, uh, for example, um, uh, in 76. And I introduced Evelyn King there uh, one night. Uh, I don't I forgot what year that was, but I, I introduced her and then I went and sat on and watched the show with uh, Peter Allen and Clive Davis. And I wasn't like buddies with them, but that's where I sat and we chatted. And uh, yeah, I saw a lot of lot of great acts at the Roxy, man. The Roxy was happening, but that we we also had the Starwood um, mm-hmm. in the neighbor in the in the hood in Lamert Park. We had uh, the Total Experience. Oh yeah, you know, we had uh, the uh, Universal Amphitheater before they put the roof on it. Mm-hmm. I, I was there. I I was at the very last performance. I remember the last song that was performed at the Universal Amphitheater was Street Life by the Crusaders oh, yeah. and they did it with a full orchestra and it was banging. I mean, I, you know, I've even told them, I, you know, way back when I said, man, I said the, the, the studio version is great, but it's anemic compared to uh, 
Oops, I'm sorry. All right, there we go. I'm sorry. Uh, the studio version was anemic compared to the the uh, the live performance that I saw at the uh, um, at the amphitheater. I'm sorry. Excuse all this motion. Let me get that straight. Yeah, the uh, the uh, that particular performance of Street Life was unbelievable, man. You had to you had to. Uh, uh, you had to be there. It's hard to describe. You know, you know how you see magic performances. Oh yeah. And it, it, they're they're in this, they they defy description. Yeah. There's that's still good grief, man. This thing keeps sliding. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. I think that'll hold it. Yeah. No. I mean, that was just an amazing period. But I mean, I was there for so many shows, including uh, George Benson's Weekend in L.A. at the Roxy, and just so many of those were just magic. That was a great venue. Great venue. Um, so, you know, you came there at a time when not only was the station thriving, but it was such a golden era for black music. I mean, so you had just all the great artists, whether they were, you know, you know, your Denise Williams and your um, uh, emotions and, you know, on sort of the R&B side, but also on mm -hmm. the funk side, just so many great acts from, you know, Ohio players to Earth, Wind & Fire to the Commodores. Oh, listen! What back in back in the day, man? It was not unusual. It was not all all unusual for me to arrive at work and run into George Clinton in the hallway. Mm. That was just another day at work. Um, uh, you go downstairs and there's Patty LaBelle by the coffee machine. I mean, it it was that was normal. It didn't happen every day, but it happened so often you weren't surprised. It was uh, that was life, and that was the, that was the Hollywood life. And and that's what we lived, man. It was the the a magic kind of a, a thing. It's 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 as uh, my friends in Cleveland uh, would ask me, "What's it like being in Hollywood?" I say, "Being in Hollywood is fine as long as you don't take it seriously." In other words, it's okay to play Hollywood as long as you know you're playing Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, don't don't get serious about it. But it sure is fun to play, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's a good place to be. It's it's a wonderful place to be. I mean, I recall being on Sunset and hearing a car honking his horn, honk, honk, JJ, JJ, honk, 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 JJ. I turned up, it's Marvin Gaye. And I remember thinking to myself, after I he pulled in his driveway, he was in front of his studio, and he pulled in his driveway, and we, uh, I stood there and chatted with him for a bit. And then after that, I'm, I'm walking out of Sunset, and I'm thinking, I'm on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, and I was just, I was just stopped by Marvin Gaye and had a conversation with Marvin Gaye. Wow, what a life! I mean, even when you're living that life, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, the 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 friendships that I've made and and the uh, people that I've uh, uh, had the uh, um, privilege to to know. Most of them have been acquaintances. Some became friends. Barry White was a friend, mm -hmm. and uh, and me and Marvin were. We had where we were approaching uh we were very friendly and it's a there's a whole story behind that which also is in the book um because <laughs> that started off a little shaky but we were we were good like within a minute of meeting each other we were cool and um but there were so many others uh so many others who were um uh very they, i you know i always loved entertainers i mean I'm, i grew up around entertainers and then i ended up in hollywood with bunches of them so yeah, you're destined to be yeah so it was it was uh it was a cool thing it's like a dream really really was
Well, was there any uh, sort of like shenanigans that went in the studio? Did any of those guys bring in any drugs or, I mean, did like stuff go on back there? Oh yeah, there was that going on. Uh, that, you know, I, it's, uh, it's something I wouldn't put that on anybody or, or blame anybody for my actions. Uh, but yeah, we were all getting, we were not all, most of us were getting loaded and, uh, that was not unusual. Um, you know, wish I had that money back. Wish I had, had not done that stupidity because it's pretty yeah. stupid. Um, I, I tell people to this day, do not smoke a joint. It's not good for you. I don't care if you think it's benign. It is not benign. It does you harm. And uh, they, they don't want to see that. So I'm, and, and I tell them I've been on both sides of that fence. I, but trust me, I, I smoke more grass than, than you've probably ever seen. But uh, that, And I don't say that with pride. I'm, I say that as a warning. Don't do that. You know, people are going to do what they're going to do. I don't think they should go to jail for it, but I, I, um, I don't think they should do it. And I, I don't do any drugs. I have a, you know, glass of wine, beer, from time to time. Yeah, well, back but back then, I mean, it was just part of came with the turf, really. You know, you know what's funny though? It's it's like the, it was part of it, and then over like an eight month period, it just disappeared from the scene. It it was it went from being hip. To, to have something on you or to, somebody would invite you to come partake. That went from being hip to, to and, and then at a point eight months later, it was not hip at all. And you just didn't do that. It was, and it, it, it wasn't as if it was like, it was, it seemed like a spontaneous action by a bunch of people. We all came to the same agreement without ever discussing it. Kind of like the death of disco. It just <laughs> That, 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 that could have had to do with it, but I'm, I'm telling you, it was amazing how that happened because we, it wasn't like something we discussed. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't like, oh, you shouldn't do that. It was just, we, we went from doing it to not doing it. Hmm. I, I quit. I said, no, that's it, man. I'm, I'm done. You know, I, I, I can't do this. This is crazy. It's not good for your health. It's not good for your, your mental state. You know, you're supposed to uh, take care of business. No, I don't think so. So, um, good riddance you know um and most people grew out of that but at the same time that was what was so amazing to me because it happened in, in like a eight or nine month period 